Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama. Providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources, our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Shelley Bell Smith. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Kimyana Burke. Dr. Burke is the Policy Director for Early Education at Excel in Ed. In this role, she supports states pursuing a comprehensive approach to K-3 reading policy by assisting state leaders in building new or improving existing K-3 reading policies. Dr. Burke most recently served in Mississippi as the Executive Director for the Jackson Public School District's Office of Teaching and Learning and led all aspects of the district's instructional programming. Prior to this, she was the state literacy director at the Mississippi Department of Education, where she led the implementation of Mississippi's Literacy-Based Promotion Act. Kimiana began her career as an elementary reading teacher and has also taught middle and high school English. At Jackson State University, she earned a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science, a Master of Arts in Teaching English, Master of Science in Education Administration and Supervision, and a Doctor of Education in Early Childhood Education. Welcome, Dr. Burke. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Shelley. How are you? I'm good. So excited about our talk today. Can you start by telling us about your background and how you got involved in the work of literacy? Sure. Um, you know, as you read, I do have a degree in political science, so I wanted to be an attorney and decided to take some time off. And I was just encouraged to teach for a year. And when I did that, I just fell in love with it. I taught reading at an elementary school and, and got certified to, to teach English. So a lot of my degrees are in secondary English. So that actually prompted my passion because I was an English teacher at a high school and just realized there were so many students coming through those doors that were struggling readers. And I began to ask the question, how did you get here? How many teachers failed you? Did the system fail you? Like what happened uh, for you to still be a struggling reader at this age? And began my research and, and work and doctorate level work in early childhood education because I really just wanted to be a part of the prevention of this because I, I saw what it did to students, you know, just to their self-esteem and those types of things. So that's how I got involved. And then in 2013, Mississippi passed this Literacy-Based Promotion Act. At that time, I was working at the university, working with the uh, College of Education with teacher professional development and literacy, and I was tapped to lead that effort. And so it has been an amazing journey. And now I get to do that with states across the country. That's pretty impressive. And having had a very similar path as a high school English teacher who went down to the elementary level as an administrator, it really does give you a different perspective on where these children are heading and what is going to happen if they don't get those skills. Right. You and I scheduled this podcast a couple of months ago, but today's conversation couldn't be more timely considering the passage of Senate Bill 94, which delayed the retention piece of the Alabama Literacy Act. This is a 
hot topic, especially as the bill sits on Governor Ivey's desk for signature. You recently wrote an op-ed on this decision. Can you tell us about what was in that article that people should be thinking about right now? Sure. You know, at Excel and Ed, we support states in different policy areas. And and of course, as you stated, early literacy is, is my policy area. And we do have what's called our fundamental principles of a comprehensive literacy policy. And one of those principles is retention as a last resort. But out of those 16 or so principles, about 12 of those actually deal with what should happen before students even get to the point of retention. And I think that that's the piece that a lot of, you know, those who are interested stakeholders may be missing out on. This is an opportunity for students to receive the tier one instruction in the science of reading, the high quality tier one instruction for those students who are identified from a universal screener as having reading deficiencies or or any type of reading challenge, then those students will be required to receive those interventions and progress monitoring along the way. And then also those parents are going to be notified at the beginning and often about their child's progress. So I think that the piece that, that keeps getting lost is all of the supports that are put into place for children and for families, and even for teachers with the professional development and building their knowledge that we have to really take into account and say that once we begin these supports and services in kindergarten, then we should be able to ensure that by the end of third grade, our students are ready. But for those who are not ready, for those who continue to struggle, allow them to have another year, a different opportunity, a different experience with a different teacher, more intensive interventions so that they can be ready. So when they reach fourth grade and they must engage with these increasingly, you know, more increasingly complex texts, then those students won't feel defeated. They will feel as if they have the supports and they have the tools and that teachers can continue to support them along the way. So I think that that's the piece that Um, overall that we really have to focus on. It's, you know, how do we ensure that all of our students, not just those in higher performing schools, not just those in the schools that have, you know, the, the higher tax base, how can all of our students get these types of supports and services? And uh, if retention is the opportunity for students to receive an extra year of growth of uh, supports, then the retention piece is is one that should be the last resort uh, for those students. Agreed completely. And I've really been thinking about, I don't know if you saw the recent article that John Hattie wrote in Ed Leadership that was published this past month. And he talked about effect size and how that we've perhaps misunderstood the list of effect sizes. And I've really been thinking about the retention piece because one of the things that's often quoted is it has a negative effect size. And I'm thinking own it to own, it probably does. However, if we go back and intervene, then that's a totally different effect size. Right. Yeah. You know, I agree. And I believe it's because this third grade, the retention piece is a state mandated piece. I mean, retention has been around in schools for as long as you can remember. What this does with the comprehensive early literacy policy is to end social promotion. Students may be retained for not meeting grade level expectations. They may not have passed science or they may not have passed math or they may not have passed reading. So students can be retained for other subject areas as well related to their local district school policy, school work policy, right? So I think that it's the fact that it is a state mandated that we're not going to promote students socially 
that we want to ensure that students have the knowledge and skills that they need to be able to function and persist after third grade. That I think that that's also the piece that that just, I guess, gives some pause. But retention has been around <laughs> for as long as we as we can remember, you know, as as a, as a way to ensure that students are not moved on who are not ready. Agreed. And we are not retaining kids for the sake of retaining kids. Exactly. We're retaining kids for the chance to do, like you said, a last resort intervention. Mm-hmm. You recently co-authored a paper on the state of Black education in Mississippi, and before that, one on the country as a whole. Can you speak to what that state is and what the implications are for action? Sure. So one of my colleagues, uh, Tim Abram, who is, is, uh, works at Excel in Ed, this was his idea. I, you know, I'm just uh, excited that he asked me to tag along and to come on board with it. One thing that we've been looking at as far as data across the country, you know, for years, we've really been able to mask uh, the subgroup data, right? We've been able to say, you know, for, for many, many of our states, the majority of us, our states, how well our white students are doing is how well the state is doing. And for so long, pulled back those layers to see, well, how are our other students doing? You know, we talked a lot about the achievement gap, but once you really just look at it and, and identify that gap, then you have to figure out what you're going to do about it, right? So we're, we're trying to get to the place where we're not just identifying it and we're not just repeating that everyone says there's an achievement gap. Okay, we know that. So now what do we do about that? And I think that with the states that we have chosen, of course, in Mississippi, we're looking at Louisiana, you know, in Alabama, these states have over a 25 percentage of their student population who are Black students. And if your Black students are not achieving as as one of your subgroups, then it is going to pull down your data. You know, everyone is, is just really you know, just kind of fixated on, okay, the data, it shows how we're performing as a state or it shows how we're performing as a district. But if you really want to improve, not just your data for data's sake, but for students' lives, like for their quality of life, if you really want to improve, you're going to have to ensure that you address your subgroups. So that's our goal with this to, to look at maybe what the history has been as far as, as data and as far as the achievement gap between Blacks and whites, then also, or, and then other students of color, and also look at opportunity gaps. Opportunity gaps in which there are opportunities for students to attend advanced placement courses, but only in certain areas, only if you live in certain districts, right? That are not those opportunities that are provided for our lower income students in those other lower performing districts. So look at opportunity gaps, but also policy recommendations and ways in which we can move it forward so that we can address those gaps and so that we can make those changes to begin to narrow uh, that achievement and opportunity gap for all students. So looking at what's offered, whether they have charter schools, reading scholarship accounts, those types of things, and then looking at who actually has access to those things. And I think that that's very important to, to think about. You know, we may offer these things, but if your students who aren't performing well don't have access to them, then it's just checking a box, right? So I agree. There also seems to be a narrative that retention is unfairly targeting students of color. What are your thoughts on this? Oh, I've had this conversation a few times. I can speak to Mississippi and in our lowest performing, historically lowest performing areas in our Delta areas of when we first began this effort, there was the conversation around how is this going to impact our students, our students of color, our students who are in areas where, 
there's um, significant teacher turnover and leadership turnover. So we've always said that we wanted our data to speak for us. But Mississippi's low-income students of all races uh, scored above the students, their, their counterparts across the country. So for our low-income students, then we are bridging that gap because we are ensuring that our teachers have the knowledge. We're empowering teachers with knowledge. And so, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, you shouldn't have to have a law for this, right? So to that, I say, this is why you have a law. This is the equity piece. So it's not unfairly targeting students of color. It's fairly targeting all students who have not had the opportunities, the resources, the accesses to say that your children must be screened for reading deficiencies. Your teachers must provide reading interventions. These best practices that may already be happening in these higher performing schools, a law like this says in our lower performing schools or in our schools that have a very high percentage of students on free and reduced lunch, guess what? It has to happen here too. So I think that it's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of a retention law to target our students of color. It's an equity law to ensure that our students of color are getting the same access and their teachers are getting the same access and training and supports and leaders are getting the same access, training and supports as our other higher performing school districts that may be predominantly white. I do think it's easy for people to think that things are common practice because they're done right. in higher performing school. Mm-hmm. And in reality, that may not be happening in some of these other places. Oh, that's, that's definitely true. You can have a school district that has five schools and there are three schools that are higher performing and the district may be an overall rated B, but you have two D schools in there too. So, you know, how do we, it's, I mean, because it's the same way that you look at subgroup data, you look at the district as a whole and say the district is doing well, but not really once you peel back the layers, you know, so now how can we support these other two schools that may be D schools? And then we can't forget about that just because of the overall picture of it all. Averages hide a lot of ugly. Yes. Oh, amen. That's right. Currently, you advise 20 states on literacy, and I'm sure the hot topic has been the pandemic. What are the commonalities you're seeing in what these states are doing because of the pandemic right now? Well, states are, the state agencies are finding very innovative ways to connect directly with teachers. That's one thing that I have just heard a lot in conversation and and that states have really, um, discussed on our quarterly early literacy network meetings, ways in which they have partnered with the public broadcasting companies to have professional development that's streaming through their local TV services uh, for teachers or modeling lessons or even developing listservs. So, you know, of course, many times the state agencies, their emails go directly to superintendents or principals, and their job is to then pass them along to teachers and those things. But there are more state agencies now that are creating these teacher list serves because they really want to make sure that the information gets directly to teachers, professional development opportunities, opportunities for their students to attend summer bridge camps, you know, are those types of things and saying that they really want these messages to be seen and heard by all and not just funneled through other channels. So those are some things initially. Other things that I've seen is that there's just been a lot of states looking to pass early literacy legislation. I I think that Mississippi started it. (laughs) Uh, I always say I think it had to be Mississippi to have these gains for other states to say, well, let's look at 
what we have. And, and when I say we started it, I mean, you know, just a closer look at it. There were other states that had adopted these policy, this policy after Florida and, of course, before Mississippi. But I think that when we began to see gains, other states said, well, let's, you know, something's happening there and let's really see what that is. So this legislative session alone, there has been a lot of engagement from states that are strengthening their early literacy policies, ones that they've already had on the books. And now they're going back to include other measures or other implementation strategies for those who are looking to adopt early literacy policies for the first time. Because one thing that we do know is that as a result of this pandemic, we have students across the country and and we had it before. But I think that the pandemic just put it in a national spotlight that are really, you know, they're, they're in need of high quality instruction. Their teachers are in need of high quality professional development. And we have to be able to meet students where they are and also allow them to to advance from there. So and it starts with a strong start. So I think that right now there are more who are really looking at early literacy as the key to to begin to make these changes and to give them a strong start. Well, and I love your point about if it had been maybe another state, it wouldn't have been such a big deal. But because Mississippi, you know, in Alabama, we said for years, thank God for Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And so for it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I think when somebody sees that, say, an underperforming school really uh-huh. a need, then people really look at that and say, what are you doing? Because it shows up even more. Yes. Right. And we didn't just have those initial gains. You know, we've increased every every NAEP administration. And so I think that they really caught uh, the attention. You know, if it would have been a one-time fluke, that would have been one thing. But we've continued to, to grow. So I think that that has really caught the attention of everyone. I agree. Mississippi has received national acclaim for improving reading, just like we're talking about through the mm-hmm. Literacy Based Promotion Act. What do you think was at the heart of Mississippi's success? You know, a law is one thing. It's just the words, right? Well, we had a governor at the time, our former governor, Phil Bryant, who made literacy his platform. The Literacy Based Promotion Act uh, was his baby. He worked alongside um, Excellent Ed to get this passed. And we not only had our governor, we had our Ed chairs, our Senate and House Ed chairs, who were on board, who would come to our reading panel meetings <laughs> to sit in and to talk and just to listen about, to listen to what our strategies were going to be, what our plans were for implementing this. And then also a dynamic state superintendent. So all of these people in these roles have to work together, have to be on the same page because there are instances where governor may feel one way about it and the State Department of Ed feels another way, but implementation has to happen and, and all of those things. But I think for us, and I wrote an article called The Perfect Storm, but I think for us, it was that that these three positions really, you know, and then the Ed chair, the legislature and the governor's office and the State Department of Ed came together to make this a priority for our state. And that was the starting point. And then also, we didn't just pass the law. They put funding with the law. There are some, they, they call these unfunded mandates. There are some states that have laws that are, that are unfunded mandates. We want you to do all of these things. We're not going to help you fund them, right? And so there are districts that they have to try to find money to do these things. So we funded it and we put boots on the ground. So we put literacy coaches in schools to say that, We're not just going to pass a law. We're going to fund it. You know, with the universal screeners, we're going to pay for those. That's a requirement. But then we're also going to give you help. We're going to put teachers in those schools. We're going to give you professional development. I mean, coaches in the schools will give you professional development. And guess what? The coaches are going to help you translate 
what you learn in that professional development actually to practice. So I think it was all of those things together where we had the implementation at the the top, the decision-making, and then we had the implementation and the supports on the ground that made it all really come together. Well, it speaks volumes for the people involved to see what the results were and continue to be. And so it was built right and it was built to last. Great work. One of the most promising aspects of this work has been changing the way we prepare pre-service teachers. And you recently wrote an article on what Texas is doing because they've mandated that teachers must pass a science of reading test. Alabama's Literacy Act includes something similar, as does Mississippi's. Is this a national movement? And what are the implications for teacher prep programs? Yes, it is a national movement, actually. Uh, <laughs> the, the National uh, Council for Teacher Quality, NCTQ, you know, we've all been saying in, in this space that, you know, they're keeping them honest, right? So they have been releasing reports about you know, which states teacher prep programs actually, you know, are aligned with the science of reading, which states have these assessments that pre-service candidates must pass in order to be licensed, So all of that information has been published and continues to be published by NCTQ. But I think that there are a couple of very important implications. So I think first, the implication is for teacher preparedness on day one. Learning what you should learn about how to teach a child how to read, how to identify when a child is having challenges in reading and what to do about it. I think that learning that during pre-service is what allows teachers to be more confident on day one, possibly persist and last longer than, you know, the first three years, uh, you know, allow them to to feel just empowered and, and knowledgeable about their content when they actually enter into the classroom. Because, you know, there are all these other things you have to learn about procedures and routines and all of these things. And the one thing that you shouldn't be trying to learn when you enter the classroom is your content or is your subject matter, right? Of course, we continue to get professional development, but you, you, you should be well-versed in your content when you enter the classroom. So I think that it's an implication for teacher preparedness. And I think the other implication is actually for state investments and funding. So what's happening with a lot of the states and with the funding that's being allocated for implementation of these literacy laws is that there has to be funding that's put in for professional development. Professional development that should have been received during their pre-service program as a part of their coursework, right? So now parents have paid for tuition And now the state has to come back and pay for professional development. So I think that and and those funds, of course, could be used for other things like putting more coaches in the schools to help teachers with this with this knowledge transfer. So I think that to ensure that these things are happening within the teacher prep program only benefits the teachers and benefits the students. And I think that this is just the time where we are breaking down the silo of K-12 and then higher ed. We're showing how what is really being done and practiced in these uh, teacher prep and ed prep programs, how it directly impacts student outcomes when you get into that K-3 system or, or our K-12 system. So it's just time for to blur those lines and to say that, you know, this is not just a cutoff. You know, this is we're we're all connected. So I think that that's what uh, is extremely important about the science of reading and 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 beginning to put that into our college of eds across the country. I think it's a game changer. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Last year, amid the early days of the pandemic and closing of schools, you wrote an article on the strategies that could be used to help students this school year. Do you know of places where these strategies were implemented and if they were successful, considering we dealt with shutdowns and interrupted learning almost this entire school year? Yeah, so uh, there were districts within states that were very committed to, uh, and in the article, like I gave some strategies for ensuring that you specifically assess students. So that's that's the thing. We always want to know, you know, where, where our students are. We have to collect that data. I also spoke about opportunities or, or ways to run summer camps, bridge camps, how to identify students who would best benefit from those types of opportunities, providing parents with resources. And then also one of the things was too, because there were so many links being shared on social media to parents about how they can help their children at home. You know, just encouraging state agencies or districts to support their parents with identifying credible online resources that parents can use. And then also encouraging vendors uh, to begin to look at how their content is being delivered since now it's not just going to be delivered brick and mortar face to face. How can they modify and improve their content to be delivered through an online platform? So those are just some of the strategies. Uh, But there were districts that um, prioritized collecting the data from students, uh, making sure that they were communicating with parents. And then also, I think one of the biggest things was trying to get summer school and summer strategies, the summer bridge programs done, but virtually. Because as you remember, last summer, when everyone thought that it would have been over by then, that it, it was not. And, and summer was when we saw our peak. So a lot of our schools continue to be virtual and offer those kind of virtual um, supports. But one thing that I did see was also some of our boys and girls clubs that were opening up to say that they would allow students to do their, their work for those students whose parents chose virtual learning. Because again, there was so much, there was virtual learning, hybrid learning, some were going in person, some were not. But we saw partnerships with our um, boys and girls clubs that were saying, well, if you have to go to work and you can't be at home, then we'll actually monitor your child can actually get on the computer here to be in a safe space, to be fed, you know, to do those things. So You know, one thing that we did see was just a lot of community agencies and supporters coming together to support our families in our communities as well. The upside of the pandemic has obviously been the innovation. And I've been really interested now that schools are doing their spring data collection and the celebrations that are coming out of how much progress students have made despite Mm -hmm. all of the shutdowns and the craziness. And so there really are some things to celebrate that have come out this year. Yes. You're in a position now with Excel and Ed where you see work across the country. Is there anything that you're seeing in another part of the country that we should be following or paying attention to? So something that is extremely exciting to me is uh, this interest in transparency. I know Colorado has been looking at a a transparency bill where districts would have to put on their website the curricula that is being used. Others are looking at putting the different types of assessments, you know, that are being used, the universal screeners or assessments that are being chosen. And I'm very excited about that because, again, it keeps all of us honest, all of us honest. Uh, We want to know that our districts are choosing and adopting high quality curriculum because, again, 
Once we train teachers, empower them with the knowledge, they need the resources that are aligned to the training in order to effectively instruct our students. So um, transparency is, is, is one thing that I'm really excited about now. And then also professional development for, for recertification. So as we have professional development going on in, in a lot of our states um, that may focus on the science of reading, there are some states that are requiring this professional development, a specific literacy pathway of professional development for recertification or for a reading endorsement. And I think that that's exciting because, you know, too many times you're, for your license, it just says well, you have to take a certain number of PD hours and it doesn't say in what, <laughs> it could be basket weaving, it could be, you know, whatever. You just have to show that you've done professional development. But I think a really a bold commitment to saying that a part of your professional development for recertification must be in the area of literacy. I think that that's also, um, that's ex- extremely exciting and that it shows the commitment. It, sh- it shows the commitment that literacy is really the base of everything. It's, you know, for science, for math, you know, for social studies, for ELA, for all of these things, that literacy is, is really the basis for or the base for all of that. And so I think that that's, that's exciting as well. What a great note to end on, because you're exactly right. Literacy is the basis for all of this other learning. And so thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate what you're doing and have done with literacy for both students and teachers. Thank you so much for having me, Shelley. It was delightful. Join us again next week for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network podcast.